Welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. We rejoin our program discussing the 2012 classified document that was declassified in 2015 that reveals important information about the Syrian opposition to the Assad government that was withheld from the American public. And the document itself was declassified through the Freedom of Information Act and analyzes the situation in Syria in the summer of 2012 and predicts if the situation unravels, this is a quote, there is the possibility of establishing a declared or undeclared Salafist principality in eastern Syria. And this is exactly what the supporting powers to the opposition want in order to isolate the Syrian regime, end quote. But let's go ahead and listen to this and let, let you elaborate further on it. But here it is. And this is an excerpt from the U.S. ex-intelligence chief on ISIS rise. It was a willful Washington decision article back in August 10th, 2015 in RT. Now, the State Department continues to point the finger at Bashar Assad's government for Islamic State's advance. That's even after a former U.S. intelligence chief admitted that the American government knew its policies would lead to the rise of ISIL. Let's get more on this now from RT's Gianni Chikian. Um, Gianni, what has been revealed then? Well, uh, the former director of Defense Intelligence Agency, Michael Flynn, said uh, back in 2012, U.S. policymakers had the intelligence uh, saying that the major driving forces behind the insurgency in Syria were extremists, but supported the in insurgency anyway. Who wasn't listening? I think the, I think the administration. The administration turned a blind eye to your analysis. I don't know that if they turned a blind eye. I think it was a decision. I think it was a willful decision. A willful decision to go support an insurgency that had Salafists, Al-Qaeda well, and Muslim Brotherhood. A willful decision to do what they're doing. Well, I went to the State Department to ask about this willful decision, but received the State Department's default answers to almost all questions related to Syria, and that is, it's all Assad's fault. Would you admit, like uh, Michael Flynn did, that in 2012 the U.S. supported the rise of the forces that we now call ISIL in order to defeat Assad? Here again is our friend John Kirby of the State Department that we alluded to earlier in this report. I'm certainly not going to talk to an intelligence report that I haven't seen. The rise of ISIL inside Syria uh, was in fact helped by uh, the Assad regime's lack of legitimacy to govern effectively uh, its own people and its own territory. Well, now, this intelligence report from 2012, which the State Department spokesperson refused to comment on, was released uh, under the Freedom of Information Act. And, you know, it has some strikingly accurate predictions about the creation of the Islamic State. And it also says, quote, there's the possibility of establishing a declared or undeclared Salafist principality in eastern Syria. And this is exactly what the supporting powers to the opposition want in order to isolate the Syrian regime, end of quote. Now, this raises the question, isn't it similar to what happened in Afghanistan, you know, with supporting the Mujahideen who then turned against the U.S.? Or as Hillary Clinton said, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, we had this brilliant idea that we were going to come to Pakistan and create a force of Mujahideen, equip them with Stinger missiles and everything else to go after the Soviets inside Afghanistan. And then we said, great, goodbye, leaving these trained people who were fanatical, creating a mess, frankly, that uh, at the time we didn't really recognize. We were just so happy to see the Soviet Union fall. 
Well, the Obama administration uh, now says that they support moderate Syrian opposition forces. They say it now. They said it three years ago. But according to the director, the chief of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the policymakers did know that not all of those forces were moderate. Okay, thanks, uh, Gianni. That's uh, Artie Gianni again live there from Washington. Well, Saeed Adikat, who is the Washington bureau chief for the Palestinian newspaper Al-Quds, thinks Washington's rigid, uh, con rigidness contributes to further destabilizing Syria. I think now it is very difficult to contain uh, the situation in Syria or Iraq. It's very difficult to put that genie back in, in, in the bottle. The United States, if it's really intent on defeating ISIS, it has to create or it has to facilitate conditions by which or through which you can have a political resolution. And you begin by saying we want all Syrians representative, including those who look at Bashar al-Assad as their representative. That's the only way, I mean, to continue to adhere to this stubborn line that Assad has lost his legitimacy is basically, you know, agitating for more uh, of these groups to, to emerge and morph into something else. Today we have ISIS, tomorrow we might have something else. Okay, that's from 2015. So it is striking that the DIA 2012 report that was declassified in 2015, it was immediately dismissed by the State Department when it came out as unimportant. It is important to point out that the State Department was under whose watch at that time? Secretary of State John Kerry. He was responsible for knowing its content. He was the Secretary of State from, what, February of 2013 through January of 2017. Al Jazeera notes that Lieutenant General Michael Flynn became, quote, the highest-ranking intelligence official to go on the record, saying the U.S. and other states, notably Turkey and the Gulf Arab states, were sponsoring al-Qaeda-led rebels in Syria with political support and weapons in an attempt to overthrow President Bashar al-Assad. But let me ask you, yeah. Pedro, I mean, how... How different is what Flynn said and what Hillary Clinton said? I mean, Hillary admits point blank. She says, you know, like in the 1970s, we gave these guys stingers and Kalashnikovs, and then when we were done using them, we just left them there, and we created this big mess. That's her quote, not mine. And then a few years, years later, it's Hillary Clinton and Petraeus who are arming these people secretly in Libya and sending them over to Syria to do the same thing there. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you can see how in Washington, someone's moral, you know, boundaries kind of are, are stretched to the limit, and depending on how the situation falls out. But, you know, it's, it's just very weird how she did a complete about-face on that issue. No, I completely agree with you, and I think that's the point of the show tonight, is to bring out the this straightforward fact that these terrorists have always been a creation uh, and a army of sorts of U.S. foreign policy interests, whether it was in Afghanistan or, like you say, the parallels are striking with the issues that have occurred in Syria. Let, let me, yeah. can I just interrupt you for sure. one second? Because yeah. I just want to throw a wrench in our topic here because there's something you probably don't know. There was a statement issued today by uh, the Russian Foreign Minister, uh, Sergei Lavrov, talking about, you know, Bagram Air Force Base, uh, aside from, like, the biggest military installation we have in Afghanistan, is now almost completely deserted, except for something like about 200 soldiers are left. I think we're down to about 600 troops in Afghanistan. And this is all happening while ISIS is taking over large sections of Afghanistan and leaving the Russians very concerned about this problem they're going to have on their perimeter. 
And it leaves me scratching my head because I never thought we should have been involved in Afghanistan to begin with. But I just wonder if they think this model that they've used in, in Libya and in Syria, if they're transporting that to Afghanistan, are they going to create this havoc of supporting jihadists in the hinterland that are going to actually cause trouble on Russia's border? But what Lavrov said today is that, you know, we're worried about this because ISIS is actively acquiring territories, mostly in northern Afghanistan, right on the borders of countries that are our allies, mm-hmm. amid the irresponsible behavior of some officials in Kabul and the hasty withdrawal of NATO. So, I mean, as soon as they leave, the entire government is going to collapse. And then what happens? I mean, so this is going to be everyone else's mess to clean up, and it could be very well another Syria. Yeah, well, I think that's the point, is that it's on Russia's border, not on our border. And I think that the issue of the United States, I think it comes back to this issue, Mike, that's so disturbing to me that from day one, we were never prioritizing a war on terror. It was a way in which to promote a foreign policy, a misguided foreign policy that, uh, yeah. you know, that take over other nations and such. In 2014, that's when Obama started the ISIL bombing campaigns, uh, along with some of these other nations and stuff, of these coalition nations. It was a full year later before the Russians got involved, yet there was no demonstrable control and defeat of ISIL until when? Until Russia got involved. And many of these jihadists, they hid out in parts of Syria that were protected by the United States. And more importantly, I'm, and, and, and I think it's you know the greatest ally to the whole jihadist deal, of course, was Turkey by allowing back and forth through their border area, all of this oil and everything else. And this is completely, you know, surgically removed from the history of the last few years. And when you do really look at these documents and and all of these things that we've been claiming for many, many years, and now all the evidence suggests that we were correct in our interpretation, you know, Seymour Hersh and and Robert Perry and certainly people like you and, and this show, there's just no coverage of these issues. And so that's why today, on Independence Day, wanted to kind of bring this out, this, this I- issue. This this going to war and elevating the tensions, Blinken in just recently was urging these allies to repatriate and rehabilitate these foreign ISS terrorists or or imprison them or whatever. Basically, Syria has won this. Essentially, Syria has won this war that has been fueled and enabled by the U.S.-led West. And now... What are we going to do about all these terrorists? Our formerly employed terrorists is Blinken's concern. And what he said was yeah. shocking. Yeah, well, share your interpretation of what he said. Well, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he basically made an appeal to the countries from where these jihadists have come. And he's saying, well, will you guys please take them back and do whatever you want to do with them? And he was not implying throwing them in jail. Mm-hmm. He was just saying that, you know, they've been of use to us, and, uh, and now the battle is essentially over. So can you help us get rid of them? You know, because they're in custody now. The United States and eastern Syria aligned themselves at first, with, not with, you know, just covertly supporting them, probably through the CIA. And uh, as a matter of fact, I was remembering back, was it four or five years ago, John Bolton wrote a op-ed for the Washington Post in which he declared how we need to accept a Sunni stand. 
instead of calling Jihadistan, he was calling it Sunnistan, where eastern Syria and western parts of western Iraq and probably even parts of uh, southern Turkey were going to be part of the Sunnistan, mm-hmm. where they were going to have... Basically, it, it was like they were imagining a second Israel, uh, you know, situated in the middle of the Arab world where no one wants this independent state to emerge. And it was it was very concerning for all of the leaders in the countries surrounding that to see how the U.S. plans were kind of materializing. As it happened, the United States had to throw their lot with the Kurds, which is the situation we have now. It's not, it's not the ally we wanted, but it's the one that is doing the grunt work on the ground to maintain, well, it's not really maintaining anything. What it is, is it's preventing Syria from reuniting its state. And so it, it's not a matter of the United States is winning. It's just preventing Syria from achieving its strategic goals. So that's, that's the situation as we see it today. Turkey is still mm-hmm. supplying arms and weaponry and manpower to the Idlib province, where you know the jihadists are still in full force. It's just striking to me that it, this is completely kept from the American public. I mean, there is just no coverage on any of the major networks. And what you have is exactly what you've described is that you got foreign fighters. There never was a moderate opposition to the Assad government, as far as militarily speaking. There just never was. It was a big lie that helped brainwash, once again, the American public into believing or accepting another U.S. foreign policy intervention into the internal affairs of another country. Plus one little thing we're forgetting, which is that they are enforcing the strictest sanctions in the world right now in Syria. So they're essentially starving the people of Syria for having supported their own national leaders. If you want to pick your own leaders like Assad, you're going to starve for it, which is mm-hmm. what's happening. The, the, the you know food and supplies have been completely from Syria. And it's just another crime that we're not apprised of at all. But I, I'll bet you didn't hear that comment from Lavrov, and I know you meticulously follow the foreign policy news, but uh-huh. man, you got to scour you got to look everywhere to find out what's going now, going I, on now. You're right. I had not heard that. And I think the whole idea about this jihadist, it's just an explosion of terrorism, of terrorist agents throughout the world that's been clearly been enabled and led by the West. And so now that the Syrian theater is shutting down in the sense of it's a lost cause, they don't know what to do with all these jihadists. Well, I think some of them are being transported to Afghanistan. That would be my guess. No, no, that's Uh, exactly right. But that's that's what they are. They're like a movable army of sorts. It's a mobile force, except in between their actual mobility. Where do you keep them? You know, I mean, well, all they're all they're looking for is there's a legal term for this: plausible deniability. I mean, by this stage, after thirty or forty years. Everyone who's followed the foreign policy game for a while knows who is supporting and funding and arming these people. But the thing is, is it still provides... What what difference did it make what Hillary said or what, uh, you know, they were so vehemently opposed to what Flynn said. But uh, how is that any different from what Hillary said and how many other people have said it? And John Kerry has said things to the same effect. I remember when Joe Biden, he was talking about Turkey. And he said that, you know, our good allies, Turkey, they're providing, you know, resources for the jihadists, and uh, and then he has, had to recant the next day. But uh, it was out there, and everyone knew he was just speaking the truth. Well, this, I, I want to remind mm-hmm. folks we're visiting with, with Mike Whitney, investigative journalist. This is bringing light into darkness. Listen, I think 
The backdrop to all of this, though, is the elevated risks of World War III type of thing that we've been seeing going on for some time between the United States and Russia, with the United States pushing the Russia gate unsubstantiated, unproven accusations. But regardless, because we don't have a, a decent press, they've been widely assumed to be true. And this past week, just a couple of days ago, U.S. officials warned Americans against travel to Russia, citing terrorism concerns and inability to provide consular support. So here, in a continual way of trying to feed this frenzy of Russia is bad and and all this, now we are telling the American public to not go travel to what, the largest country in the world. Are you aware of this U.S. Department? No, I'm not, but I I wanted to ask you a question about it. It's just like, you know, they finally had the summit between Biden and Putin. You know, I mean, basically, Trump was prevented from having any kind of connection or any kind of summit with Putin because they were concerned that he was in his pocket and that he wasn't going to perform exactly like the foreign policy establishment wanted him to. But what was the... I mean, since Biden met with Putin... They've taken more relaxed stand. I mean, we, we've restored uh, diplomatic relations. We have an ambassador in Moscow. They have an ambassador in Washington. And so I didn't see where there was any hard-nosed approach to Putin. He wasn't saying, you're going to do this or, or there's going to be trouble. So what, do you think, what was accomplished in that summit? I didn't. Well, let me just say this. I think, mm-hmm. number one, the important thing to kind of keep in mind is what you just mentioned. Why is it that when Trump wanted to go visit Putin, there was just endless barrage of unsubstantiated things from, you know, from the Afghan bounty stories and, you know, all of this other stuff. Yet when Biden wants to go, there's not that type of opposition at all. And I thought the same thing coming out of that meeting. There was a lot of, first of all, Biden telling Ukraine to back down uh, with their aggressions that they were de- dealing with in that country. I think it was pretty apparent that Biden had, had had advised them of. But initially, it looked like the diplomatic things were opening up. But I'm saying this article dated June 29th, which is just a couple of days ago. The State Department has told its citizens not to travel to Russia under any circumstances, with Washington suggesting that Americans could be kidnapped, arrested, tortured, and even supposedly jailed on trumped-up charges. So it's this scare, totally absent of reality type of deal here. So it's almost like on one hand, they're trying to tell Putin one thing, and on the other hand, they're still feeding Russia is evil and the aggressor monster. Well, if if you're looking for the country that has uh, the least regard for due process, you'd have to look at the United States, look at these people who the January 6th protest in Washington were thrown in jail, a lot of them are still in jail. Why haven't they been processed? Why haven't they been given normal due process? These people are still in jail. And, uh, you know, you look at Julian as a lunch. How do you justify that? How do you talk about their political guy who broke the law when he came back and has now been incarcerated, Navtali, who has no political power, he has no political base. level of support in Russia is like 2%. Who clearly broke the law and the incarceration or illegal detention, I would call it, of Julian Assange, who's been in prison basically for 10 years, still is in charge and has not received any due process. I don't see how people can justify that. No, I totally agree with you. Not only is there a lack of due process when it comes to Julian Assange, but there's been a a cascade of of lies 
promoted by Western press, such as Luke Harding's claims that Assange was visited by Manafort on multiple occasions. But more importantly, as we started the show off by celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Pentagon paper released by Daniel Ellsberg, what would we have known about the Vietnam War if it was not for that release? We have such an absolute absence of accountability for our government policies because our press has betrayed its tradition of protecting the interests of the majority public, that it's folks like Daniel Ellsberg and Julian Assange and other whistleblowers that are simply providing the American public and the world public real-life documents that reflect what objectively goes on behind the closed doors of our intelligence and foreign policy officials. And then that's criminalized rather than the war crimes that those policies have resulted in. And I think when it comes to this article about the uh, shutting down of U.S. travel, this new travel advisory to avoid traveling to Russia, as well as specifically advising against visits to southern regions like Chechnya and Crimea, U.S. citizens are now being told to avoid the world's largest country altogether. And to your point, I mean, the statement cites terrorism as one reason for U.S. tourists to stay clear of, uh, of Russia, despite the fact no serious incidents have been reported in recent years, while a number of other European nations have received similar categorizations over the COVID-19 situation. Destinations like France and Germany avoid the highest level of warning despite enduring more frequent terrorist incidences. So this is clearly political. And this is trying to create a, an unsafe world and blame all the problems of the world on countries like, like Russia, it appears to me. Well, we've already talked about how NATO is pushed relentlessly eastward into Russia's border. Russia has every reason to be concerned about that. They've been invaded twice, Napoleon, Hitler. That's always going to be a concern. There's constant provocations. They have sanctioned Russia many times. I don't know whether your people know this or not, but the sanctioning, the economic sanctions against Russia are entirely illegal under WTO rules. Mm -hmm. And these constant provocations. Mm -hmm. And then there's the media barrage constantly. Putin, Hitler, Putin is the worst guy. Putin kills. By the way, you know, this idea that Putin kills journalists, I mean, that's another fabrication and communication with, yeah. you know, a, a Russian scholar, Stephen Cohen, he's been right, on right. Uh, Tucker Carlson many times, mm -hmm. and he has since died, he died last year, he sent me his books, and uh, we were in communication, and he said, he sent me a, a long piece that he had written about, there's no evidence for any of those charges. But you know what, you can't argue with Americans about that, it's like COVID, the thing, what, you, what people know about Putin is absolute truth, and just don't try to challenge them on it. You know, had they followed his career and read his speeches over the last, I would say, 17 years, as I have, they might have a different perspective. Yeah, well, well said. And I think, I think we need to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Mike, if people want to read your, some of your more current writings and stuff, is there a, a, a website that you would point people that are interested in? Uh, yeah, I usually post on Global Research and mm -hmm. on UNS, the UNS Review. Mm -hmm. And uh, mostly I've been following the... COVID thing for about the last year or more. You know, I haven't as had, had as much time for foreign policy uh, just because there's so much going on in COVID world. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight and your insights, and we will look forward to following your work in the days, weeks, Hey, thank you for ahead. having me, Pedro. I really appreciate it. Hey, man, it's, it's a great pleasure. All right, have a great night.
Okay, we'll see everybody next week. Stay tuned for some overnight music, but you'll have to switch on over to KOOP.org. But first, as we do at the end of every Bringing Light into Darkness show, we take you out with Land of Naivety. Pimp psychology.